1: Good afternoon and thank you so much for joining us at the Tribeca Film Festival as part of our Tribeca Talks Industry Masterclass Series. Um, When we came up with this concept and were trying to think of who to invite to talk about editing, there was really only one name on the list. She's had one of the most incredible careers working with Martin Scorsese for over 30 years now and we were absolutely delighted that she was willing to come and join us today. I'd like to introduce Thelma Schoonmaker.
2: actually, Marty and I have worked together for half a century. (laughs) It's a little scary when he said that to me the other day. (laughs) Um, In honor of Robert De Niro, the co-founder of the Tribeca Film Festival, along with Jane, I have decided to only discuss Raging Bull today, so I hope that's not going to disappoint you. It's black and white, and I understand a lot of you don't like black and white movies, but you're, you're cutting out 85 years of film history when you do that. I'm doing this because it's one of the most thrilling films I ever helped edit. The direction is brilliant, the camera work superb, the acting of De Niro and Pesci stunning. I mean, what can you say about what Robert De Niro did in this movie? To say nothing of the great use of music and sound effects and editing. (laughs) I had never edited a major feature film before I came to L.A. to work on Raging Bull. I had edited Scorsese's first film with him, that knocking before that? But I had been working on documentaries after Woodstock. And uh, I uh, was a little terrified. Um, Scorsese taught me an enormous amount on this film. When the footage came pouring into my editing room, I felt as if I had been given pure gold to edit. I couldn't take my eyes off De Niro's face when I looked at the dailies. And I'm not just going to talk about editing today, I hope I don't disappoint you, because Raging Bull is like a textbook for filmmakers, and I want to discuss the great collaboration of many artists that went into the making of this film. I'm very to ha- happy to have my associate editor, Scott Brock, who's sitting over there. <laughs> Here on this stage with me, The Rock of Gibraltar in my editing room, to run the clips for us, and to hopefully keep me from getting lost amongst them. So, let's run the first clip. First, I want to explain why Raging Bull was made in black and white instead of color. In preparation for making the movie, Scorsese had shown De Niro the film made by Michael Powell and Emeric Pressburger in England in 1942 called The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. I will refer to this as Blimp from now on. This is because the weight gain De Niro was considering for playing Jake LaMotta was relevant to the movie. You'll soon see why. Scorsese had always been fascinated with the work of Powell and Pressburger and was responsible, along with the British Film Institute, for helping to rediscover the masterpieces made by the two men and for bringing Michael Powell to the United States. Forgive this very brief summary of their history. In fact, Powell and Pressburger went on. Uh, Powell and Scorsese went on to become very dear friends. And Scorsese, to this day, devotes himself to restoring their films, and celebrating them. After Scorsese found Michael Powell living in relative obscurity in England, they had a lunch where Michael Powell describes Scorsese pummeling him with fast-talking questions about the Powell-Prosperger films, and Michael says in his autobiography that after all those years of oblivion, the blood started to run in my veins again. Powell asked to see one of Scorsese's films and Scorsese showed him Mean Streets, which Michael Powell thought was a masterpiece. And when Scorsese brought him to New York, he demanded to see where it had been filmed. While De Niro and Scorsese were driving Michael around Little Italy, they stopped in to see video of De Niro training to be a fighter in this movie. Scorsese was already beginning to choreograph the camera moves for the fights in the film. After watching the training videos Michael Powell said simply there's something wrong about the red gloves and Marty said you're right it should be in black and white this was because he had always seen fights in black and white on television and when his father took him to movie theaters to see fights they were black and white kinescopes so it seemed right to Scorsese to film Jake LaMotta's life in black and white a wonderful moment when one director sparks off another Michael Powell was to influence Raging Bull in other ways as you will see later on First of all, I'd like to show you how Scorsese's design of the fights was so incredibly important, to say nothing of the shots he designed. But uh, he even had different size rings created, depending on Jake's frame of mind as he was approaching each fight, whether he was exhilarated or in despair. So first, let me show you a normal size ring, and then I'll guide you to some of the issues here in this clip, Okay?
3: Lamar fighting out of a half crowd. Reeves is up against the tough fighter, a man that has no power to back up. Lamar continues to bore in. Lamar out of the box. down. The crowd is going to take
2: on. So that's a normal sized ring. Note the use by Scorsese of flashbulbs. The production spent $90,000 on flashbulbs in those big old cameras, and they became a theme throughout the movie, representing how Jake's progress is being noted by the world. Today the flashbulbs would be put in digitally but the fact that the actors playing reporters were encouraged to constantly flash their cameras gave us wonderful moments in the fight sequences. I'll repeat now a clip to show you how the flashbulbs gave us a wonderful edit and then I'll show it to you again in slow motion, okay? <laughs> And now again, uh, we got lucky, see there, with the flashbulbs on De Niro's face and also on the shot of Reeves falling to the canvas. You put those two shots together, you get a nice edit. Uh, This isn't planned, but you take advantage of these kind of things as an editor always. So here it is slowed down, so you see. Now I'm going to show you in the next clip Uh, how the size of the ring has been changed. Scorsese did this because in this fight, Jake LaMotta for the first time knocked down Sugar Ray Robinson, his great rival. So Scorsese asked for a larger sweeping ring, actually bigger than most boxing rings are, brightly lit to coincide with Jake's frame of mind as he achieves this important knockdown. You'll see that wide frame in a minute. But first note, some amazing camera work And I must rave about Michael Chapman here, the director of photography, who along with Scorsese created the unbelievably beautiful camera work for Raging Bull. Scorsese saw every fight film ever made before making Raging Bull, and the one thing he noticed in those films was that nobody was shooting inside the ring with the fighters. That's because to get a camera inside a ring with two fighters and a referee moving around unpredictably is extremely difficult. That is why most fight films up to that time were shot from outside the ring. But Scorsese was insistent that his camera be inside. I'm going to repeat a clip, but first we'll show you some part of this fight. There's a lot to talk about in editing there, but first of all, notice two amazing camera moves. One up from De Niro's foot... To him throwing a punch, and the use of a drum sound over the round eight sign. And then notice a shot that begins on De Niro, swings around 360 degrees, and comes back onto him again. Unbelievably hard to do with two fighters constantly moving, again with an extremely interesting sound effect. I want you to try and listen to the sound effects in this movie, because they were created by a genius, and I'll talk about him in a minute. Then you'll see the big sweeping. You, you see that big sweeping size of the ring just before Sugar uh, Ray is knocked out of the ring. So here's uh, the shot which will show you the, um, the move up from the feet to De Niro throwing a punch and also the 360-degree turn of the camera. Okay. Right at this <laughs> Ten longer. tries
3: both hands to the head. Kurt Robinson again. Hooks the left hand of the jaw right to the body.
0: The
2: actual moment of Jake knocking Sugar Ray through the ring wasn't powerful enough, so we skip-framed the shot of Sugar Ray, then froze the next frame of Jake standing over him triumphantly. And, of course, we used a frame where a flashbulb had gone off and then skip-framed the shot of the reporters rushing to get a photo of the event. Note the extremely interesting use of sound effects. Instead of a big crowd cheering, an isolated whistle, which is sharply truncated, and a weird, eerie echoed effect, not the cheering crowd you would expect. Okay?
0: Robinson back right
3: on the nose. A left, guys, the, ring. A left to the right to the head,
2: In the next clip, you'll see how the camera slips from normal speed into slow motion as De Niro goes back to his corner and then picks back up to normal speed um, as he goes back in to fight again. Note again the interesting sound effect, a slowed down whistle intercut with crystalline sound of the flashbulbs. brings me to one of the most important collaborators on Raging Bull, the sound editor, Frank Warner. When you met Frank, he seemed like a very congenial, middle Westerner, uh, a gentleman who would often say things like, okie-dokie, but he had the mind of a genius. He had already won an Oscar for Close Encounters of the Third Kind and had been the supervising sound editor on Taxi Driver. But when he approached Raging Bull, he soared into the stratosphere with his incredible ideas. I'll be pointing out some of those to you as we go along. Frank would create a different sound for each punch in this movie, and there are a lot of them, and audition various ones for Scorsese who would then pick the one he wanted. We never got him to tell us how he made those punches, (laughs) but they were perfect. In fact, Frank would burn all of his sound effects after he finished a movie, not because he was afraid someone else would use them, but because he didn't want to use them himself. He wanted to approach each film with a completely open mind. His creation of the sound of flashbulbs going off is so pure and isolated, so brilliant, that sound editors ever since then have been trying to copy it. (laughs) And his uh, use of a drum throughout the film is an incredibly important theme for Raging Bull. He created the drum sound himself. He wasn't a musician, mind you. He was a sound editor. But it was his idea that a drum would be very important for this movie. So it was just Frank and a bass drum alone in a room uh, recording things. He would then take those recordings and slow the drum down sometimes, play it backwards, echo it, and where he chose to place those drum sounds is just brilliant. In the next clip you're going to see some of Frank's most beautiful sound ideas for the film. But first notice the difference now in the ring. Uh, we've just seen a big wide brightly lit ring. Now we're going to see in the second encounter between Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake LaMotta a very different ring. It's like descending into a pit of hell. And note the use of the drum on this first shot. This is because Jake will lose this fight on a technicality and his mind just could never digest what happened because it was clear to everyone that he had won the fight. So Scorsese filled the arena with smoke to to symbolize the way Jake's mind cannot understand what's happened. Flames were mounted underneath the lens to create uh, a wavy, queasy, mirage-like look, again emphasizing how the decision in the fight is unreal to Jake. Note how we often deliberately used shots when we edited the beginning of this fight so that you don't actually see punches. It's just two fighters sort of fumbling around with each other to again increase the idea that it was unreal um, and also note that when Jake sits down in the, uh, at the corner a rope covers his face that was deliberately designed note the drum sounds again so we'll, we'll play this clip and then I'm going to emphasize some of the sound effects <laughs>
3: Jake LaMotta and Sugar Ray Robinson meet for the third time. These men are unique, becoming classic rivals. These two men, fierce, powerful fighters, dangerous so much so that no other fighter will go near them. And so they fight each other. Three weeks apart, they've each won one. And they'll probably fight again the way it looks now. They go to close quarters at the bell.
2: Now, we're going to run uh, the second, uh, another chunk of this fight. Note the drum over the round seven sign, and here you'll see some of Frank Warner's most amazing sound effects. Note how in the second shot, as De Niro bounces into frame and throws a punch, Frank uses the sound of a horse shuddering over that shot. Also note the use of slow motion on Sugar Ray as he falls. Scorsese knew he wanted to use a lot of slow motion in Raging Bull, and he usually shot at four different speeds to give us choices in the editing room, 48 frames per second, 72 frames, 96, and 120 frames per second, which gave us wonderful things to work with in the editing room. As De Niro returns to his corner, note the isolated whistle sound again and the flashbulb shots, which were done in slow motion. Okay, listen for the horse shudder now here.
3: Round seven with Sugar Ray. Well ahead on points. Lamada may need a knockout. And, and Robinson is down for the second time in his career. He was down in the last fight. Two. Lamada, watch his Sugar Ray. Take the count from the left three. Robinson trying
2: to get up. Now we'll just run that, just that tiny little piece, right? Scott, yeah, uh, I will... Listen for the horse shutter again.
3: Yeah.
2: Now more of the fight. Note the slow motion shot of Sugar Ray as he gets up, intercut with a slow motion shot of the photographers coming back up. Again, the kind of thing, idea that comes to you when you have a lot of footage like that and, and it uh, just seems right to, to bolster Sugar Ray's anticipation of what's coming next. Now, another great Frank Warner sound effect. Notice the elephant bray as Jake comes in to pummel Sugar Ray. Hey. He's
1: up on the
3: street now, and the referee is piping off his gloves. He is stunned. Lamada comes at him. <coughs> <coughs> He's big knocked down. Robinson is well ahead on point. He hooks the left to the jaw, left to the right to the head by Robinson. Lamada.
2: There you see why Jake was so upset about this fight. Um, and you see the the queasy sort of mirage-like effect created by the flames that are underneath the lens. Here's just a repeat of that wonderful elephant bray. Now who would think of putting a horse shutter and an elephant bray into a boxing film? <laughs> Frank Warner, that's who. You'll see more of his use of animal sounds later. Just a small note about the collars on the shirts of the men in Raging Bulls. Scorsese wanted to have the actual collars he remembered seeing worn by the mafia in this movie. Very long pointed collars that basically almost obscure the tie. And here you'll see Frank... uh, Go ahead.
1: This Tommy tells me every-
2: Here you see Frank Vincent wearing one. You can barely see the tie. This is very typical of uh, the kind of collars worn by the mafia at that time. Here is the mafia Don also wearing one. And uh, it, the extras got very tired of being called in constantly by Scorsese to make sure that the collars were pressed right he had his parents used to work in the garment district pressing clothes press the collars because nobody else knew how to do them right and some of the extras who were called back again and again said the movie was about collars not jake lamotta but (laughs) but it is little details like this that that uh, contribute enormously to the authenticity of raging bull in the next clip note that jake lamotta who resents the mafia interfering in his career does not wear the collar (laughs) Looks good on Jack. Huh? <laughs> Throughout the movie, Scorsese used slow motion to emphasize Jake's obsessive point of view. Sometimes it is used for his opponents, as in these shots here. Sometimes it is of the mafia he hated so much. Now, notice in this sequence where the mafia guys come to the gym and Jake hates them and his brother has told them to come and he's angry at his brother about it. Uh, Even there are times when we put normal sync sound in the mouth of Frank Vincent, who's playing the, the mafia guy here. Even if it doesn't fit, didn't matter. We, we did that quite a bit in Raging but We liked the effect of it being slightly off. So here's his obsessive views of, of the mafia that he hated so much. Excessive uh, jealousy of his wife Vicky is the other place that, that uh, a lot of slow-motion shots were done. This jealousy would eventually ruin his marriage. Beautiful uh, slow motion,
3: absolutely.
2: You can imagine what a joy it was to have footage like that to cut with. <laughs> we love the fact, of course, when Frank Vincent threw his cigarette away, the way it registers in slow motion. Jake Lamotta bought a 16 millimeter movie camera uh, when he started making money, and Scorsese feels that Lamotta's own home movies may be a better movie than Raging Bull. He feels you can see the disintegration of Jake's marriage uh, in the footage, even though everyone seems to be smiling. So he decided to mimic the home movies as a way to show the passage of time in Jake's marriage and intercut black and white frozen frames of Jake in the ring during the many fights he had as he worked his way towards a crack at the championship. Now, aside from the main title in red in the beginning of the movie, this is the only time the color appears in Raging Bull. We had to hot-splice the color sections into the release prints because in those days before digital, there was no way to print black and white on color stock convincingly. It always had a tinge of color to it. So the black and white was printed separately, and the color sections were then hot-spliced into the actual release prints. This caused a lot of problems in distribution. Once when I was checking out theaters during the first run of Raging Bull, I came across a projectionist spooling footage from the movie onto the floor of his booth, horrified I asked what he was doing and he replied someone made a mistake at the lab and spliced some color footage into this movie it's supposed to be black and white and I'm taking it out <laughs> this is why we call the projectionists the final editors <laughs> so I'm going to run this uh, the whole movie's clip now note the beautiful use of the Mascagni classical music here A brilliant choice by Scorsese, who scored all of Raging Bull with pre-recorded music. To make the footage look amateurish, we spent a great deal of time making bad edits, jump cuts, and cutting in flash frames from other color movies we had made, the footage that comes in between the takes as the camera slows down. Even some of the tattoo the lab put on the leader and scratching up the actual negative to make it look as if it had been screened a lot of times. We degraded the image optically and desaturated the color as if it was fading with time passing. And Marty personally went into the negative cutting room and took a hanger and scratched the negative. (laughs) I thought the negative cutter was gonna have a heart attack as they pride themselves on never creating a scratch. So you can see we had a tremendous amount of fun jump-cutting things. I told Marty I thought his mother should have shot this footage because everybody's head is still in frame. But in, in home movies, they usually aren't. <laughs> and these are free frame grabs that we froze. Scorsese's parents couldn't afford a reception at their marriage, so they had their reception on top of the tenement they lived in. And that's what Scorsese based all of this sequence on. Again, you know, the deliberate bad camera moves. It's Marty's daughter on the left. This is a Marty scratch. (laughs) See how the music so beautifully reinforces the sadness of Jake LaMotta's life. The studio tried to get us to use another piece because it was cheaper, but uh, we kept insisting on this one. That's his other daughter. Now De Niro, as you know, has been utterly convincing as Jake LaMotta, a stunning performance I think rarely equaled on the screen. He trained for almost two years to become a middleweight fighter. He could have fought at that weight if he'd wanted to, but he knew that if he didn't look like a real fighter, the film would be undercut, so he trained with incredible dedication. Now, as you may know, also he had to gain weight for the part, first a moderate weight gain and then a big weight gain for the end of Jake's career. Here is where Michael Powell again influenced Raging Bull. As I have said, Scorsese had shown De Niro the the film my husband made with his great partner, Emmerich Pressburger, called The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. In that film, the main character has to gain weight also. He also has to age. De Niro didn't have to age quite so much. De Niro was fascinated by the film and, and how convincing the weight gain was and pummeled Michael Powell with questions about how he did it. Here is a clip of young Roger Livesey playing Clive Candy before the weight gain. As a highly decorated young army officer.
3: Where you get? South Africa Jordan.
2: Here is a clip of him as an old man who has gained a considerable amount of weight and age. One of the ways that Powell and Pressburger did it was with a double, a very good use of a double, a man who actually was fat and old. um, And I'll show you that, reinforce that in a minute. Uh, And that was one of the ways they were able to make it convincing. Of course, this is not the kind of thing that De Niro would ever agree to. (laughs) Um, However, notice how beautifully Roger Livesey is is, uh, giving the effect of age and weight, and just with his beautiful acting, Okay, here's how I'm going to show you the doubles that were used so you get an idea of how it was done. That's a double. That's a double. but De Niro wasn't having any of it. (laughs) Michael Powell was dead set against him gaining the weight and said that Livesey had conveyed his age and weight with acting, which you see in the next clip. Go ahead.
3: You're an extremely impudent young officer, but you damned young idiot. War starts at midnight, haven't you been told? (laughs)
2: Of course, the character is also much older than Jake needed to be, but you see how beautifully Roger Livesey uses body language and alters his voice to be convincing as an old military gentleman. However, De Niro was determined to gain the weight, and after Scorsese shot him at his fighting weight, uh, which you have seen already in the clips, he went away to gain the middle amount of weight while we edited and then came back to shoot those scenes with the middle amount of weight, then went away again to gain the rest of the weight while we edited and came back to finish the movie. Unbelievable dedication. Here are some examples of uh, the weight gain. I can't
1: see nothing with your stomach away
2: now. Now, another sequence where his brother has... Is insulted him and leaving. Look, look, look at Bob's acting here on, and this incredibly frightening camera move back because De Niro is now going to go upstairs to confront his wife. Unbelievable. I can't waste
0: that 10,000. I tried, I tried, I tried a lot of places. And what am I That's what they're going to do, they're going to do. What can I do? But fuck them. I don't do what they're going
2: to do. Now, I'm going to show you a scene which is about editing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. Um, that is because... Uh, the scene was completely improvised by two great actors, as most of the dialogue was in Raging Bull, De Niro and Joe Pesci. And when Scorsese shoots improvisation, he always has two cameras so that any improv one actor goes off on is covered with the other actor's response. But in this case, he was shooting in what was Jake Lamotta's actual kitchen. And it wasn't big enough to get two cameras into the room. So reluctantly, he had to shoot each actor separately. And then we had to try and make that one the wonderful improvisations they came up with work together as if it was a scripted scene. It took almost a month for me to wrangle the footage into some sort of shape. And even today, I can see where I was having a little trouble. It was extremely hot, and the babies were crying a lot during the shoot. I'll show you a clip of that in a minute. I love cutting improvisation, and my experience as a documentary film editor was very helpful here. With documentaries, you're given a great lump of raw material, and you have to find a story in it. The same is true of improvisation. The editor has to shape the raw material almost as if you're sculpting a piece of clay. Scorsese used as a basis for this scene where uh, Joe Pesci is trying to get De Niro to fight a fighter that he doesn't want to fight, um, he used as a basis for it his own confusion when his agent is explaining movie deals to him, percentages, grosses, etc. They're incomprehensible, and he keeps saying, "Tell me again," to the agent. So uh, that's how they base this. Note the wonderful moment at the end where Teresa Saldana playing Joe Pesci's wife dares to enter the improvisation ring. <laughs> it was such a surprise to Joe Pesci that she opened her mouth. And his response was so funny that we used the actual footage of that moment, even though Teresa isn't in the shot. You can see in the next shot that Scorsese loved Joe's reaction so much that he then shot a sequence, uh, a, a set-up with Teresa in the shot. But the original reaction of Joe's was so funny, we eventually went with that without Teresa in the frame. Accidents like this are something Scorsese loves. Okay, we're going to run. This is quite a chunk of film here. Oh, don't ever do that Gennaro
0: bullshit again. No more deals like that. You hear what I'm saying? What are you about? What am I talking about? Look at that. 168 pounds. Stop eating. What's this little smart ass? I told you I didn't want to do it in the first place. Didn't I tell
1: you that? No, you didn't say it. You're the one that told me you could get down to 155 pounds. When I get it, when I pull it out of the fucking air, I don't know if I'm gonna make it down to 155. I'm not gonna make it to 160. And on top of that, you signed me for a fight at 155. And if I don't make the 155, I lose $15,000. Right? Oh, you're supposed to be a manager. You're supposed to know what you're doing. I did just what I wanted to do. That's what I'm worried about. You didn't want a title shot. What are you talking about? You want a title what, what am I? In? What am I? In? A circus over here? I asked him he's got more sense about this. What are you doing? You've been killing yourself for three years now, right? There's nobody left for you to fight. Everybody's afraid to fight you. Okay, along comes this kid, Janeiro. He don't know any better. He's a young kid up in common and fight anybody. Good. You fight him. Bust this hole. Tear him apart. Right? What are you worried about? What's the biggest thing you got to worry about? You worried about the weight. You worried about the weight? What are we arguing about for? I just said the weight. Okay, let's say you lose because of your weight. Are they gonna think you're not as tough as you were? You're not the same fighter? Good! They'll match with all those guys that were afraid to match with before. What happens? You'll kill them. And they gotta give you a title shot. Bring me coffee, please. Why? Yeah. There's nobody else. Nobody's left. Who are they gonna give it to? Coffee. In a minute. You listening to me?
0: Please,
1: honey, bring me the coffee. All right? Yeah. Oh. now while I'm on Are you listening? Now let's say you win. You beat Gennaro. Yeah. Which you definitely should beat him. Right? right they still gotta give you a shot at the title you know why why cause the same thing as before there's nobody left there ain't nobody around they gotta give you the shot you understand if you win you win if you lose you still win there's no way you can lose and you do it on your own just the way you wanted to do without any help from anybody you understand? Just get down to 155 pounds, you fat bastard You Stop eating. <laughs> what's the problem? Stop eating. That's all. You can do it. You don't understand anything. You understand that? You know, Joey's right. This is I was an up and coming fighter. good looking. He's popular. You beat little... him oh, now. Excuse
0: me. Excuse me. What do you mean good looking? <laughs> I'm
1: saying good looking. I'm saying popular. What are you well,
0: the same about look, good looking? I
1: don't say anything. I'm just telling you, Joey's right. Yeah, what
0: do what, what you want to die or what? Take it. Get out of here. Take the baby and get out of here. Everybody, all the sons on the diary about this. She's done. Where's she find out he's good looking, first of all?
1: She didn't mean nothing. <laughs> you <Boy>, it? <I'm sure. laughs> <laughs> people are talking, you don't interrupt. It's none of your business. Especially if it's my brother and his wife. They got nothing to do with you. Now get out of here. Go inside. Get in. Take the baby inside. Sleep the glass. See, okay?
3: Change your diapers. Can
0: you see? She's sure.
2: no, no, make her cry. i <laughs> make you cry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, uh, they were shooting under unbelievably difficult circumstances. As I said, it was hot. The babies were crying. So now, here is some footage from the outtakes. It's very poor. Quality of what they were actually uh, putting up with. You'll see how De Niro was able to retain that incredible look on his face with, with what he was dealing with. Watch this. All
1: right, they still got to give you a shot of the time. Yeah. Why? Yeah. There's nobody left. There nobody around. But you should definitely beat me. got kill him. <laughs> well, not, not for you. Not for you. You, you, you do it just the way you want to do it. They still got to give you a title Oh, shot. he dropped out. Yeah, I'm give, give it to no Give it to Give it to still got to give you a title
0: right? Since <laughs> they know what they want. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, he wants to fight you, good. We'll fight him. We'll bust his hole. Tear him yeah. apart, right? Yeah. What are you worried about? What's your
0: biggest worry? My worry is the kid's keeping his crying a lot. Besides, they keep crying a lot. Oh, what's Oh, what's the matter? Right? Yeah. Uh, what's the matter?
1: look at it another way. Say I grab this kid and throw him out the window.
2: Be an old and, old and this is what he does to the man they wanted him to fight and that his wife said was good-looking. Listen to what Frank Warner's doing here. It was Marty's dad on the right there. Um, now, another influence on Raging Bull um, from the Powell Pressburger film The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. The sequence had such a profound effect on Scorsese that he based a scene in Raging Bull on it. In Blimp, the young English officer you saw earlier uh, goes to Berlin to counter anti-English propaganda coming out of the Boer War in South Africa. He gets himself in hot water by insulting the entire German army, and therefore is forced to fight a duel with a man he has never met. German officers have drawn lots to decide who will defend the honor of Germany. Dueling was very prevalent in Berlin at the time of this movie was made, whereas in England it was long gone. I'll first show you a wonderful scene that Scorsese loves, in which British embassy officials reluctantly have to meet with German officers to go over the rules for the duel, taken from an actual book on how to fight a duel.
1: I see here that paragraph 133 says, a few hours previous to the duel, it is advisable to take a bath. Only the principles, not the seconds. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: it's a very strange sensation to be preparing a duel between two people who've never even seen each other. It happens sometimes. Marriages also, you know. <laughs> By the way, has your men ever fought a duel? No. Has yours? Strictly between ourselves, uh, Theo doesn't really approve of duels. And, gentlemen, is this fight really necessary? Sir. There are moments in a soldier's life when his personal feelings do not count. Oberleutnant Kretschmer Schuldorf knows his duties. They will.
2: The dropping of the pen sound effect is worthy of Frank Warner, I think. Um, Now, a very abbreviated version of the elaborate and funny preparations for the duel, which fascinated Scorsese so much. Uh, And I'll talk a little bit over that. Okay.
3: I wish I'd brought my uniform. How are you with a sabre? Oh, I don't know. I know which end to hold. We drew lots of them. Thank you. Right. Do you want to roll up your sleeve, or will you rip it off? What's better? I am not permitted to give advice. I think I'll rip it. (laughs) It is definitely better. Doctor, your scissors please. What
0: did
3: you hope to find in there? Protective bandages.
2: Now, these two men have never met, and they're going to fight each other. It's a, a very Paul Pressburger thing to do, very unexpected for one man about to fight another man to smile at him, but it's so insane what's going on that uh, that smile is, is very important. And this is what impressed Scorsese so much, is that after all the build-up and you've only seen a little bit of it, watch what happens as the duel begins.) Ready? Scorsese couldn't get over the fact that Paul and Pressburger had the guts not to show the duel. Any filmmaker would be under strong pressure from a studio to show the duel. But what Powell and Pressburger were more interested in was in the archaic and ridiculously complicated rules for the duel, and the relationship of the two men who were forced to fight each other, but would become friends for life. So when Scorsese needed to show Jake LaMotta finally getting a shot at the championship, he was bored by the idea. What had been important all along in the movie was that what Jake had to go through, including throwing a fight for the mafia, to get a shot at the championship, not the fight itself, which everyone knew he had, he had won. It was part of cultural history at that point. So inspired by Blimp, Scorsese decided to design an elaborate build-up to the fight and then get the actual fight over with quickly. This is the amazing Steadicam shot that I'll show you now. For those of you who don't know, the Steadicam was devised so that a cameraman could have a camera strapped to him that had devices to compensate for his movement so he could walk with it and do complicated camera moves without having to lay tracks or use a crane. This is one of the earliest Steadicam shots, by the way. Okay. So here you see... um, a shot done entirely with the cam. De Niro and Pesci in the basement of the stadium. Cameraman is now going to walk backwards in front of them, making sure to keep them in frame and guided by someone behind him holding onto him so he doesn't trip or bump into anything. This includes having to go up steps backwards and very hard to do this well. Again, the music by Mascagni is achingly appropriate to all that Jake has suffered to arrive at this fight. The cameraman just went backwards up those stairs. Now he's going to step aside so he can now do a reverse on Jake as he goes up the stairs and into the stadium. 1,200 extras for this shot. Now the Steadicam operator's going to step backwards onto a cherry picker crane that's going to lift him up into an overhead view of the arena and the ring. At this point, the announcer wearing the white jacket on the right and holding a microphone was supposed to begin his introduction of La Mata, but he was scared stiff, and in spite of the assistant director jumping up and down and shouting at him, talk, talk, he stood there, Mute. So using a little artistic license, I started his introduction over the wide shot and then cut into him in sync in the next shot. Scorsese designed this shot for the title. Then Scorsese said to me, let's just get the fight over with quickly. He wasn't interested in it since the end result was already known. So notice how fast De Niro attacks Marcel Sardin who was his opponent here, and how abbreviated the rounds are. They get shorter and shorter. It doesn't We had tons of footage. We could have made it much longer, but Scorsese was really determined to uh, really get it over with. He was bored by the idea of the championship fight. Okay. Well, it's the slow motion shots now of Sirdan and then the beautiful shot of water being poured over De Niro's head also done in slow motion. Now Sirdan's ready to forfeit the fight. This is an American Indian referee. All the referees and fighters were real people in uh, the movie. Marty had designed a beautiful long shot there, but we had to truncate it. The film couldn't handle it, so we just shortened it. <laughs> Listen to Frank Warner again, hear what he's doing. And now for the last fight sequence I'll show you, the final fight between Jake LaMotta and his great rival Sugar Ray Robinson. I want to apologize to you for the brutality of this sequence, but it is part of the point of making the movie. Boxing is it's insane, um, and in my opinion, I think it should be banned. <laughs> Scorsese had an amazing design for this fight. First of all, he decided to use the actual voice of the announcer that was on the kinescope of the real LaMotta fight. He said to me, we would never again get that kind of poetry if we asked an uh, actor to redo it. First, you'll see images that Scorsese saw when he went to a prize fight with De Niro. He didn't want to go to one, but De Niro insisted. And (laughs) there he saw some amazing images, which are in this movie. The blood-stained sponge uh, that is used here um, is uh, the first image that he saw. And notice Frank Warner's dark sound effects, animal sounds, and distorted sounds from the crowd. As as Jake's handlers try to revive him, notice how Scorsese makes it seem almost as if they're giving him extreme unction before his death. The man holding Jake's head in his arms, by the way, was really Jake LaMotta's actual handler. As I said, Scorsese throughout Raging Bull used real fighters, trainers, and referees wherever he could. Notice the animal breaths also put in here. Okay, we can run the first part. Rick Lamada's real handler. Scott. Is the next one going to start with the commercial again? Okay. Um, The Scorsese decided to reproduce the crude commercial, the way commercials were done in the early days of TV, which is that you actually see a hand flipping a card that's superimposed over the TV image. Are we running part one? Part two? Okay, here. Watch the hand come in now.
3: LaMotta, we've heard it now. We have LaMotta on the green street holding on. Well, certainly that was one of the most damaging evidences of punching that you have seen in recent years. Come on! 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 Robinson, apparently tired, punched with a fairly well, and brought Jake LaMotta oh, really? right from here.
2: Now, Lamata was famous for never having gone down in a fight. didn't matter how much you meted out to him, he never went down. He could take unbearable amounts of punishment. In the next clip, the camera has a rheostat affixed to it so that as it slows down, as Sugar Ray backs off and tries to figure out what the hell he's going to do to get Lamata to go down, uh, the exposure will change automatically as the speed of the camera slows down. Um, And uh, Frank Warner gave us a wonderful lesson here, which was that at an important moment like this, where maybe some filmmakers would have people cheering and saying, go for it and kill him, uh, instead he said the most important thing you can do at a moment like this is to take the sound away, uh, which is what he did. You'll hear its beautiful and very, very slight sounds of uh, animal breathing. camera slowing down now Frank's taking the sound away cameras rounding coming up to speed as he comes in for the kill Um, are we repeating this clip okay here it is again the camera slowing down Oh, sorry. Stop for a sec. Stop. Yeah. Sorry. Um, okay. Uh, this is not going. This is the big clip, right? Okay. What follows is um, a sequence that took us a long time to cut. Scorsese had storyboarded every shot to cut in a certain order, and we had ninety thousand feet of film to work with. But as we worked the footage, it became clear that some other juxtapositions might work just as well. We again had many different slow-motion speeds and incredible coverage on the beating Jake is taking. De Niro was unbelievably cooperative while shooting the many setups you will see here. He would say to Scorsese, what is the next shot? You're going to get hit in the left side of the head. And then, what is the next shot? You're going to get hit in the right side of the head. Um, Of course, there was no fist in the glove or he would have been hurt. Um, All the while, he had to wear prosthetics for blood and spraying sweat and constantly being made up as the damage to his face got worse and worse. To get the shot of his legs buckling, he had his trainer sit on his shoulders, actually, to to make that happen. He was amazingly patient, and this sequence took a long time to edit and shoot. What we found, interestingly enough, was that it was Jake's wife Vicky's reactions to what was going on that became the linchpin for the sequence. We didn't expect that, actually. We spent a long time figuring out when to see her cover her eyes, then when to see her bend forward to put her head in her lap, and then, most importantly, when she lifts her head back up again to witness even more horror. This is a long, rather brutal sequence.
3: Round, the championship of the world has changed hands. And there you see it, a champion died down to teeth. And so now we wait for the announcement from Eddie Clayton, the ring announcer.
2: And this is a shot that Scorsese actually saw when he went to the fight. Now for the final influence of Michael Powell on Raging Bull, Jake LaMotta confronting himself in the mirror at the end of the movie. In the beginning of the film, we have seen Jake LaMotta spouting Shakespeare as part of his nightclub act. This is the beginning.
0: Do I much... Do I rather hear you cheer when you delve, do I rather you cheer when I delve into Shakespeare? or us, my kingdom for a horse, I know six months
2: but when it came to the final scene of him getting ready to go out on the stage shakespeare was again going to be the text because the real jake lamotta did do shakespeare in his nightclub act but michael powell urged scorsese and de niro to do something that came from their own culture from america so they decided to do the famous on the waterfront speech notice the beautiful shot scorsese took to begin this sequence
0: Some people aren't that lucky, like the one the Mama Randall played in on the waterfront, an up-and-comer who's now hour down and hour. You remember that scene in the back of the car with his brother Charlie, a small-time racket guy, and it went something like this. It wasn't him, Charlie, it was you. You remember that night at the garden, you came down my dressing room and you said, kid, this ain't your night, we're going for the price on Wilson remember that? This ain't your night. My night. I could have taken Wilson apart that night. So what happens? He gets a title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. I was never no good after that night, Charlie. It was like a peak you reach, and then it's downhill."
2: Now Scorsese and De Niro did 15 takes of this speech, all of them valid in one way or another. No coverage, just Jake confronting himself. They were trying to find just the right attitude for Jake LaMotta as he finally comes to accept who he is. Scorsese and I rarely disagree, but I preferred a warmer take from De Niro. But Scorsese said he thought Jake had to be very cold when he confronts himself. So we screened it two ways, and Marty was right. (laughs) His feeling that a colder take was the right one was borne out by what our friends told us after watching both. This is the last clip I'm going to run. It's very short. Um, It's uh, Scorsese himself is playing the stage manager talking to Jake off camera, a fitting end to their magnificent collaboration on this film. Notice Frank Warner's drum as Marty closes the door, and then Frank Warner's final drum sound at the end of the film as it cuts to black. Really enthusiastic, yeah. (laughs) Great board stage manager.
1: anybody have any questions?
0: Right, over
2: here. I'll
0: repeat. Hi. First of all, I want to say
2: I am an editor, and as an editor, oh, we are using mics, okay. <laughs> Um, I want to say, first of all, I'm an editor and also a director, and as an editor, I've faced resistance for being a woman who wants to be an editor, and in those times, you've often been the person that, for me, helps me get through those moments because of how you forged that path, so thank you so much for thank that. You. Thank you. Um, I'm very curious about your collaborative relationship with Mr. Scorsese, because clearly you all have a very good collaborative relationship, and I'm curious how you all, if you have anything to say about that storytelling collaborative relationship and what works about it, and how you all have shared those stories. Well, I think when he first met me, he realized that he could trust me to do what was right for his movies, as opposed to it being an ego battle. I think he'd had quite a few bad ego battles that... uh, uh, by the time of Raging Bull, he had had some bad ego battles in in uh, Hollywood with editors who didn't agree with what he was doing. And believe me, Marty is never wrong. So, um, <laughs> you know, that was the editor's problem, not his. But he felt that he could trust me to do what was right for the film. And uh, he taught me everything I know. You know, I knew nothing about editing when I met him. So we have, of course, my taste is his taste. So we share... A common uh, way of looking at his dailies. He wants me very much to be a colder eye. He spent so much time dreaming of the movie, co-writing it, shooting it, that he wants me to look at it uh, in the dailies very coldly and and tell him if anything's wrong, which it hardly ever is, but to also see things in the footage that maybe he doesn't see. He says, I bring out the humanity of... What is in his films, but he puts it in there. <laughs> so, uh, but we—it's a wonderful collaborative relationship. We we make a thousand decisions every day. He comes into the editing room after I've done the first cut when he's through shooting, and it, it's a wonderful collaboration. We talk about everything—not just movies, but—and um, the movie we're working on, but politics, religion, on the right side of the screen. We always have Turner Classic Movies on all the time. Silent. <laughs> Um, so that we're not looking directly at it, but then he'll suddenly say, oh, my God, wait, this director did this great shot here. Look at this great shot. So it's like being in the best sort of film class in the world. Um, But it's just an incredibly um, wonderful collaboration. We don't argue. We don't fight. fight. Um, We sometimes have disagreements, but they're resolved by screening different ways. So that's all I can say. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: Hi, um, I'm a film student at NYU, and uh, we edit uh, mainly with an uh, avid media composer. So I was just curious, because um, I, I had read that uh, for Wolf of Wall Street, uh, that was shot digitally, it was shot on digital, and I was curious if that was um, a different approach for your editing techniques um, versus, you know, everything else you've done.
2: No. Actually, uh, I switched to digital on casino with the help of Scott Brock, who came into my life at that point <laughs> and taught me how to do it. Um, and we work on Lightworks, which is an English system that uh, never kind of held its market share here, but it's a system I love because it still has some of the aspects of filmmaking and it. It has a controller uh, like the flatbeds used to have, and you don't have to do everything with keys. But... Um, I was very reluctant to uh, switch to digital, but I knew I had to, um, and Scott was terribly patient with me. <laughs> and uh, finally, after about two weeks, I, I was often running with it, and I find that it means I can <laughs> — (Laughter) He threatened to make me put a 25 cents in a jar every time I said I could do this easier on film Um, but anyway uh, I find I experiment a lot more now with um, digital editing because I can make a copy of my edit in a flash when I was doing it on film and Scorsese wanted to see a different way I would have to take apart the edit hang it in the bin remember how I put it together do another cut, and then if we didn't like that, put back the original cut, and that took a lot of time. Now, Scorsese liked that time. He liked to walk around and think about the movie and think about the footage, and he also liked on the flatbed, I would run back and forth uh, and he could get a view of all the other uh, shots that were possible for a sequence, whereas now, with digital, I just jump down the timeline. He gets one split second to see it. It drives him nuts. But um, I, you know, so we, we, I switched long ago. However, uh, in fact, Wolf was shot on film but edited digitally. Everything is edited digitally now. It's very hard, I think, to, And all the labs are closing, which is very tragic. It's, it's very upsetting for us, but uh, there's nothing we can do about it.
1: Okay, we have time for just one more thank you hi i'm
3: an actress and a self-taught film editor and i started maybe four years ago or so and um i guess i'll stand um i'm wondering i'm sorry for the broad question but what advice would you have for what, is what? what advice would you have for young editors for people coming up
2: oh dear yeah well yeah you know, I- <laughs> Uh, it's hard for me because i live in an ivory tower you know i Mm -hmm. working for scorsese is the best job in the world and um i haven't had to look for work uh ever since i started working with him Mm -hmm. so it's very hard for me to advise i'm not out in the cruel world um, yeah no i'd love your perspective sorry i'd love your perspective (laughs) well i would say that um the only thing I always tell people is to just try and get your foot in the door. In the film business, if you get your foot in the door, people quickly evaluate you and see if you've got what it takes, and they give you uh, chances. So I would do anything to get my foot in the door. I would work for free. I, I would do anything. Uh, that's the only advice I can give you. I'm sorry. but No, that's great. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's all we have time Thank for. Thank you, you so much.